Today's episode is with Dan Porter. Dan is the co-founder of Overtime, a multi-platform digital sports media company with a community of over 50 million followers that generates 1.7 billion video views each month. Overtime also recently launched Overtime Elite, a pro basketball league that pays high school aged players more than $100,000 annually, while also providing health benefits, equity in the parent company, and college tuition should the player not pursue pro basketball. In this conversation, we discuss why Dan launched Overtime, how the company currently makes money, what it was like raising money from Jeff Bezos, and much more. This was an awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach. Monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback with Whoop. Train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all-new Whoop 4.0, the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. The all-new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. The device also features an all-new smart alarm, designed to wake you up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. Plus, it was designed with their new Anywhere technology, so you can wear it with their new Whoop Body Sensor Enhanced Technical Garments, boxers, shorts, compression tops, leggings, and more. Just remove the band from the device and slide it into your garment of choice, and you're discreetly tracking your daily activity with Whoop. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now, and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. Not only is the device comfortable to wear, the app packs a ton of health information into a simple display that's easy to understand. Get the all-new waterproof device for free when you sign up for Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months left on your membership, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering 15% off when you use code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Next up is Public Rec. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling, all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with thousands of others, are wearing these, and trust me, they live up to the height. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they're definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30 plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live 24-7 US-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code Joe. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coin.cloud slash Joe. That's coin.cloud slash Joe. And don't forget to use promo code Joe for free Bitcoin. All right, Dan. First off, thank you for doing this. Um, I, ha- I have a bunch of questions on Overtime, Overtime Elite, everything. But I wanted to start off with a random one here uh, that I'm not sure how often you've talked about. But I read online that you sold the first concert ticket on the internet. Is that true? Uh, yes. Uh, we, we were, uh, we started, uh, me and my partners, the first uh, live event kind of ticketing company on the internet. Uh, I would say like DSL wasn't even that big of a thing. So there were times when I was in the basement of a nightclub 
And I wasn't even trying to get them to use our software. I was trying to get somebody to hook up a DSL line <laughs> so that they could uh, process volume and not use dial up. And uh, what year is this? Went out and, and sold concert tickets uh, over the internet. And what people don't know at that time was that Ticketmaster very quickly started selling tickets online. And we noticed that every night the Ticketmaster site was down from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. And it looked like basically they were taking orders into a web form. And then uh, between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., they were actually fulfilling all of the different orders. So they weren't really selling the tickets online. They were kind of, you know, giving the appearance of, but we had a full transactional engine written C and HTML, and we sold concert tickets on the internet. And eventually we sold the company to Ticketmaster. Nice. That is, uh, that's good. What year is that? That was 1999, uh, really, when it started. There we go. That's bragging rights right there, I think. <laughs> I yeah, like or, or like, or it's like a, a hat tip on how, how older. How yeah, you're aging there. yourself a little bit, but yeah. we'll, we'll forget yeah. that part. Uh, okay, let's move on to overtime. So overtime, uh, I think everyone probably listening to this is familiar with you guys now, but for anyone who isn't, you guys really got your start in high school sports, which was an area, um, well, I don't even call it high school sports. I'll call it you know, a younger generation, right? Because you were focused mostly on high school sports and basketball and stuff like that. But you also really just focused on the individual. And I don't know, maybe you have a different perspective, but from mine, it really didn't matter what exact age they were or where they went to school or any of that kind of stuff. It was, what did culture want, right? Who, who do people want to see? So let's talk a little bit about, you were at WME before. What, what was the idea behind starting overtime? So I know you have a co-founder, Zach. Uh, I believe he worked at, at WME also at the time. How did this idea come about and, and why did you guys decide to go after it? Yeah, so to be clear, like we never launched a high school sports company. Like a high school sports company, somebody wakes up and says, I wanna cover high school sports. For us, it was always about the audience. And it was clear from working at WME or Endeavor, and doing two things. One is building the digital talent division. So working with, you know, 10, 20, 250, what we call now creators, YouTubers, Instagrammers who had massive, massive audience of, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of followers. So that what was clear from that, it was clear that the young audience was engaged with all of these people. You know, you could go talk to somebody who was had, you know, kids who were 12, 15, 18, and you could talk to the kids and you were like, you didn't ask them if they watched YouTube. You were like, who are the, who are the YouTubers that you like? Um, and meanwhile, WME bought IMG. I was very involved in, digital around obviously a sports company and, and working with some of the sports leagues. And so two things were clear at the same time, right? One was like the entire audience was engaged on one side and on the sports side, there was a steady decline of a certain demographic of people, Gen Z and to some extent millennials who were watching live sports. And there were, there were so many reasons for that, you know, in retrospect, right? There are structural reasons around paying for cable. There's social media reasons around watching highlights. There's competitive time reasons for playing video games or doing other things. And, you know, that was also the time of Colin Kaepernick and many other things. And there were, there were people who just thought around certain sports that it didn't meet what, what they thought 
thought of the world is and the world should be. And, and, you know, one of the things about Gen Z, which I believe is true, and I'm also a college professor at NYU, so I see that my students, they're very engaged in, in, in trying and passionate in trying to create a world that's more equitable and a better world. And they saw some conflicts there. And so we kind of walked away from that and said, wow, if somebody could figure out how to engage this audience in sports, like that's a big opportunity. And so that was the idea. It, it, it could have been Frisbee golf. Like it had nothing to do with high school sports. Nobody was like, let's launch a high school sports site. It was like, how do we get this audience? And there were a couple of things that was clear. It was clear where they consume content. It was clear that they wanted digital first content that was formatted in a very specific way. And it became clear very quickly that just like in YouTube and Instagram, they wanted to see people who are like them. And so as soon as we, you know, if, if, if I, you know, in a, in a perfect world, even if I had rights, if I started and I said, here, here's a player in the NBA, what, what do we know? Number one is like, that person is probably not like them. They're probably older. Number two is that content is in a million other places. Like there's no reason that they have to see that on overtime. And so we kind of thought like, what can we show people to, 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 to get them activated, to make it feel like we're the place to see that. Um, and they're seeing people who are like them. And as we looked into, you call it high school, I, I almost call it like pre, pre-professional sports, like a focus on those 20 players who are on, on their path to the NFL or the NBA. And you're almost kind of watching an old school version of ESPN. You just moved it two years earlier because we don't cover 32,000 high schools. We don't cover 99.9% of athletes who play high school sports. That's a totally different business. And so we understood that there were people like Zion Williamson and Lamella ball and you know trevor lawrence and a a whole ton of different athletes and these were who the the people wanted to see this is who our audience wanted to see it resonated with them and if you took that idea and you combined it with a really powerful idea around distributed distribution meaning we have over 52 different channels on every single social platform if you talked both in your visual language and your caption language in the way that the audience responded to, you could create something that was really powerful and that could capture and you know their interest and speak to them. And I, I obviously we see this all the time. Like we see this in music. I can listen to, you know, what I would call a rap song from when I was growing up in the late 70s and 80s. And my, you know, my kids or a young person could be like, what is that? That's, you know, that's not rap music. The format is different. The drum machines are different. The way the phrasing is done is different. What they're talking about is different. The way that outfits they wear is different. Every generation wants to hear its version and its own stories. Um, And when you looked at the, the, the incumbents, you know, the ESPNs, the Fox, the CBS, like, they had a giant big audience of people my age. So what's the incentive to go after this audience? And by the way, if you start to go after this audience, don't you alienate someone like me who's like, why do they keep saying lit on their page? What is lit? You know? <laughs> and so for us, it was a very clear opportunity to go after a big audience in a kind of narrative storytelling way and build community and brand around that. So the way I look at this now is, uh, you know, five years, you guys were founded in 2016? 
Yeah. Yeah. So f- five years ago, uh, this wasn't very obvious. I don't think to a lot of people, right? Maybe to you as someone who uh, kind of understood the landscape. But today it's very obvious that every sports league in the world is trying to attract younger fans, right? And we realize uh, there's plenty of studies out there that you can go and search. And basically they all say the same thing that the younger generation cares about the person, not necessarily the team, right? They're much more interested in kind of who the person is, their story, where they're from, and the highlights almost, right? And, and getting to know them. That's the reason why Odell Beckham is so popular. Sure, great player, but he's also got a personality. He makes YouTube videos, he does all this stuff. At the time, as the head of digital, I'm sure you had uh, a very good relationship with the professional sports leagues. Was this something that they were concerned about at that time, uh, or did that not happen till later? Well, they were concerned with it at that time, but it wasn't a broad media trope. So you could argue that I'm not even that smart. I just kind of had access to a narrative because of my job three to four years before anyone else had access to that narrative because it's not in their self-interest to go out and issue a press release and say, we're freaking out about young people engaging with sports. But if I was their agent or I worked with their agent or anything else like that, I had visibility into that in 2013, 2014, I think several years before a number of people did. And it's a hard thing to solve because the general solve for that tends to be like, let's invite a bunch of YouTubers to XYZ sports game and they can make it popular. You know, let's get some of our athletes to do a dance on TikTok and they will make it popular. And ultimately that doesn't work because it's a bandaid. It's it's not a structural change and leagues are like fortresses and in some ways they need to be like fortresses. And it's hard for them to make larger structural changes. It's hard for them to change the storytelling. And by the way, they have millions and millions of fans who are more in my demographic who are perfectly happy with the way everything is. Um, And so, you know, if you kind of flash forward to our launch of our own league. And so we kind of started out in, in storytelling and we've, we've grown to say that our, our mission ultimately is to create disruptive sports IP, both in the physical and the digital world. Um, You know, it became clear that, that all the changes that they could do were really difficult for them. And I don't, I don't blame them and they're incredibly smart people running all those entities, but that, you know, they have a lot of masters to serve or a lot of different audience segments to serve um, at the same time, including team owners, including all of those things like that. And so, um, and it's hard when you're inside of something to, to really see what it looks like from the outside or to, to see all the challenges And so I I think we understood from the storytelling perspective, like if we're going to solve this, like we're almost better off solving it by just starting something from the ground up and building for this rather than, you know, taking something in and, and, and moving it like that. Like Google became Google, like Yahoo was in the search business way before Google was Yahoo bought every other company in the search business. Um, And it didn't matter. They couldn't pivot the ship to understand what Google was doing fast enough. And, you know, in the long term, obviously, they lost market share. Well, the interesting thing there is uh, Jeff Bezos invested in both you and Google. So (laughs) you you, you might be on the right track. Uh, I hope so. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, on the rounds of on the back of investing uh, and raising money, you guys raised your first round seed round in 2017. Uh, You raised two and a half million dollars, I believe, which doesn't sound like a whole lot of money in today's market, but it's a larger uh, seed round. It's it's not like if 
this word 2021, like I was asking somebody, we, we consider that a seed round. And I was talking to somebody on Monday night and he's like, yeah, I'm running the seed fund. And I was like, what's that? $3 million. It's like $3 million, $8 million seed round now. I was like, wow, well, that's three times bigger than the seed round we raised four years ago. But yeah, not, not only was that not a ton of money, it basically gave us 12 months to, to prove our thesis or we would not exist anymore. So it put us on a very, specific and short time frame where immediate traction was needed and results were needed. And, and if you could argue that our long-term goal was to build brand and build community, those things are really hard to do in six to 12 months. Yeah. So I got two questions off of that. Did everyone, was it oversubscribed or did a bunch of people say no? It, uh, oh, 60 people said no. I have a Out list. Out of how many? One day when we uh, are worth billions and billions of dollars, I will release the list and all the emails of the people who said no. And the funniest thing about, oh, 59 people said no. And I mean people, I mean funds and whatever yeah. else. And they were like, some people said no because they said that I was personally too old to run a company like this. I will never forget those people. Um, literally, they came back and they said, we, we think it's interesting, but we don't invest in people who are older trying to serve a market like this, even though Zach, my co-founder was 23 or 24. Um, that's one you tape people, on the, on the office door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I put on my, on my workout, on my workout bike to make me pedal faster. Um, some people said no, because they couldn't get out of the zone of what they thought high school sports was, which was content for parents and recruiting. They lacked the imagination to understand that we were actually doing neither of those. We were creating something bigger. And to me, the most amusing thing is I remember. So we started in New York. We started in New York because we all lived in New York. Um, New York City basketball, Dykeman, Rucker Park, like there's a ton of cool stuff like outdoor New York City basketball in the summer is lit. It's just it's a vibe. It's so intense. And that's what we used to film. And that's where we started. And so in the beginning, we were like, oh, you know what? We'll go to L.A. and that'll be our next city. And then we'll go to Texas and then we'll go to Oakland and we'll start to create communities around street basketball and all those things because we were just figuring it out. And there were at least five or six investors who were like, you know, we don't really think that that strategy is the right strategy. It's not going to work. And the funny thing is within four months after talking to them, we had already abandoned that strategy. We were on to the next strategy. Like they got so caught up in the strategy of how we were going to do it, that they lost sight of the bigger thing that they were going to do. And, and I thought, this is my third company. Like you guys know me, like I, you actually know me, like you believe I'm going to figure it out. And, and they all passed, they didn't get it. And, that, that, and that's one thing I would say we too. Three, we have three investors who passed in a prior round, who came back in a later round and said, you know what, we, we were wrong. Yeah, good for them then, right? The ability to yeah. uh, to, to no, change their them. mind. They're great, right? Uh, so I will caveat with you. I believe sold a company previously. I don't know the exact uh, you know numbers behind everything, but it was sold for two hundred fifty million dollars or something like that. And there was some over like two hundred million dollars. Yeah. Two hundred million dollars. So you would expect that that would give you some kind of uh, leverage in the discussion for raising a seed round. But it sounds like you some would people, expect. Yeah, but they doubted Dan Porter. So. Wrong, uh, bad mistake there. Uh, all right, so let's talk about what happens when you get the money, right? So uh, you tell me, but the best of my knowledge, you guys basically built a platform to upload video content to, and you had 
people or kids or whatever, we'll call them stringers, right? Around the country, a uh, thousand, two thousand of them, whatever it was. And they were uploading content on here at games, right? So you tell them, Hey, this kid Zion Williamson can dunk the hell out of the ball. Go down there in South Carolina, get some videos of him at the game, upload them. And then we'll post them on social. Is that fairly accurate? It's fairly accurate. Like if you want to talk about tactics, like if this were like a class on startup stuff, we wanted to build our own platform. And we thought that we could build a place that was exclusively dedicated to watching essentially the young superstars of the future. And so, and, and we thought unlike an Instagram, it could be organized in different way by geography, by type of player, by high school and, and stuff like that. And a couple of things happened, you know, we were like, if we build this, it's almost like a sports center for every state or for every school. And it became really clear, like that was really hard to do. Like we had partnerships, I think with a hundred schools in the Northeast and, you know, that almost broke us in the ability to negotiate with them. The second thing is we, we'd find out that like most of the athletes at the school were like, I didn't really do anything that was worth putting on your platform. Like, you know, I made a shot, but I'm, you know, it's not, it's not incredible. Like the number of people who thought that they were at that level who deserved to be that was way less. It's, it was almost like cringe to have people covering you in a way, if you didn't think you were super elite. Um, and then as we did that, and, and from the beginning, my goal was to use iPhones to do it. I just thought that's a connected camera. It can be anywhere. I had an experience, you know, a couple of years before that, where when my son was in eighth grade, he sank a game winning shot and I missed it. And somebody on the bench filmed it on their iPhone and sent it to them. And I still have it on my iPhone today. And I was like, there are cameras everywhere. We just have to figure out how to harness these cameras. And we have the ability to be anywhere, anytime, any place. And so as we started to branch out beyond New York and beyond high schools, and we started hearing about Zion and covering him, it became clear that half a million people would watch a Zion Williamson video. And like, you know, a hundred thousand people would watch videos from a hundred different schools. So like, if you can cover one kid and get five times as many views, why are you crushing yourself and your very small team to try to go school by school? Um, and it became clear that, you know, people cared about a, a handful and, and you see the same thing. Like if you watch a CNBC or you read a finance thing, what do they want to talk about? Dogecoin, Tesla, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Bitcoin, Tesla. Like they don't want to talk about the 8,000 other stocks in the stock market because they're not sexy and they're not fun to talk about it. What does E want to talk about for most of the 90s and 2000s? The Kardashians, you know, they don't want to talk about all these. And so you people can't process all that information. So you kind of hone in. And we were doing it on our own platform. And I was like, how are we going to get people to download this app? Let's post just let's create an Instagram account and we'll post some of it. And then we'll tell them to download the app to see more. And it became clear that the Instagram account was growing so fast that that we need to understand that our opportunity was about social distribution and reaching people where they were rather than trying to drive people to an app. And at some point we just pulled the plug on the app. And as soon as we were there, we were on, then we were on Instagram, we were on snap. You know, we were the, almost the very first sports brand on TikTok because I had been, you know, running a talent business. I had represented musically stars. I knew a lot about the platform and TikTok bought musically and stuff like that. And so through the process, it was a constant iteration and evolution. So you went from covering a lot of, you know, 17 year olds to realizing that there were 
20 17 year olds that everybody cared about from having your own platform to realize that there was this incredible power in in essentially distribution from following the kids there to now all the way i mean we have a show with tyler hero who we covered you know we have a show with with kate cunningham like you cover all these people across their journey and to your larger point people invest in people and that's the stories that they want to see and you know if if you are not a fan of you know the oklahoma city thunder but your next door neighbor growing up like all of a sudden is on the oklahoma city thunder you're gonna watch the thunder because you want to see him and you care and it's actually one of the challenges not just of sports leagues in general but of startup sports leagues because you try to create a competing you know competitive football product and everyone's like, I don't know who any of those people are. Like, why would I ever want to watch that? Like, and so I think you're you're right. And part of our process became a, a, a very rapid iteration experimentation. I mean, at one point we were in lacrosse, we were in volleyball, we couldn't get traction. They were more insular communities. We just shut it down and we kept moving. And we, you know, we've done a number of things like that. You know, I, I could probably give you a list longer than the people who turned us down of the ideas that we did internally that didn't pan out. But we always learned something from it and rolled it into the next thing. That, that brings up a good question. What is the craziest thing you or someone on your team had to do to keep overtime alive and growing? Wow. Nobody has ever asked me that question before. I mean, there were certainly people didn't, people didn't love the fact that we showed up and filmed events. Actually, that's not true. Athletes loved it. Teams loved it. Fans loved it. But, you know, they're established event organizers. There were sometimes networks who had that. And so, you know, people would see, they'd recognize somebody from overtime with an iPhone and they'd throw them out of the venue. Uh, and uh, I think at one point, uh, you know, ESPN threw us out of a venue. It wasn't ESPN. It was a third party like a really small company that's not very good. That's a third party that produces the ESPN events. And they almost like served our guy, Larry, with something. And we made a video of him ripping it up and putting it on Twitter, which maybe was a little too, too fork in the eye, but we, we were, we were, we were younger or they were young and I was younger. Um, but I, there was a lot, I think there was a lot of that. And there was a lot of like, just trying to be in the right place at the right time. You know, if you were at an NBA game and after the game, you could somehow sneak on the court and go up to an athlete and try to get a piece of content or say, Hey, I'm from overtime or anything else like that. Um, you know, uh, anything like that. It was very, I feel like it has a lot of similarities with like street marketing for like music. It was very grassroots. Like there was anything that I would tell you as an answer to that never happened in our office. It happened at a game. It happened at an event. It happened, you know, trying to go by somebody's house. It was very guerrilla marketing in that sense. Yeah. And uh, I assume the athletes in most cases really loved it, right? Because uh, if you think of, you know, I don't know if I'm dating myself at this point, but the guys I think of that really made you guys popular in my mind were Zion Williamson, uh, Mac McClung. Those two really stick out. LaMelo, there was some other ones that I think came over 100%. at yeah, different times. But their audience blew up through you guys, right? Like, the, like yeah. I saw these guys talking to Drake. I saw them on TV. I saw them all these places. So what was that relationship like with the athletes? 
Yeah, I, it was interesting because obviously, look, this was before NIL or anything else like that. So you could never have a transactional relationship around money with anybody because it was forbidden. Like our job isn't to have them lose their eligibility and that's yep. not their job either. Um, and I think what people didn't understand about us is that we existed in a parallel economy and that economy was the cloud economy. So I'll never forget somebody I work with told me, he said, you know, I was in LA and I went out to lunch at, you know, a fast food restaurant and this just enormous guy came up to me because I was wearing an overtime sweatshirt. And I was like, he's like, do you work for overtime? And he was like, I didn't know whether to say yes or no. Cause he was like 300 pounds. He was like, yeah, why? And the guy said, because you guys put my son on overtime yesterday and he gained 50,000 followers and got three D one offers. Wow. And so not just Mac McClung, but many, many people understood that they cared about growing their own social following. They cared about their cloud. Some of it was exposure and some of it was just Mac McClung will have those three quarters of a million followers for the rest of his life. Um, and, and they participated in that. And he's an example where he then, you know, went to Georgetown initially and, and wherever else, and he got less exposure and his growth stopped. And, you know, now it'll start again. And he's a great guy and a phenomenal player, but there, there's no doubt that, you know, what they wanted was those followers because those followers gave them power. And I, I'll never forget, you know, I think we did an interviewing, an interview with Zion or it was us or someone else. And they were like, you have 3 million followers. And he was like, LeBron has 35 million followers at, at that time. They both have a lot more now. And so you realize like, no matter how big you are, you want to get bigger because that's power. You know, that's a direct connection with your audience that sells your sneakers, sells your Jersey, lets you do speaking events, lets you write a book, lets you control your destiny for the rest of your life. And we were the first um, social media sports entity to ever tag athletes like you could go on sports center and they'd say lebron james dunked and they wouldn't say at king james right we were the first one to tag them and put it in the caption so that people would follow and that's them. changed because of you guys now for sure 100%. yeah oh, yeah they and it's all, almost I mean, seen as like at, you look at all of those big media companies and they look like overtime now yeah i was gonna say they use uh you know, it's happened over years, so it's tough to kind of tell exactly what's going on. Uh, but they certainly use some of the language and what I'll call like cultural relevancy uh, when it comes to that. And, and you can see it, there's literally account to account to account. They all go through this yeah. phase where they start doing stuff like that. Yeah, I'll uh, tell you what's crazy. What's so crazy is that we never had pro sports rights, right? Like I don't have billions of dollars to pay the NBA or the NFL, and that's fine. Like good for them that they get that. So we couldn't post pro sports. But meanwhile, you can't post 12 Zion dunks a day. And so we had to come up with another language and other stuff to post. So if you watch Overtime, there's funny stuff and goofy stuff and some kid dunking over some other kid on the school bus and everything else like that. We just had to do that because we didn't have pro stuff. And it was so successful that when you look at Bleacher Report and House of Highlights, ESPN and Sports Center, they post that same stuff because they saw how successful it was. And the irony is they actually have pro sports rights and they still post that stuff. And the only reason we posted it was because we didn't have pro sports rights and it became part of the lexicon, um, which I just think is hilarious. Well, and that brings up a good point because I don't think there's a narrative that uh, younger people, Generation Z or whatever, uh, do not watch pro sports because the games are long. 
And there is some aspect of that, that attention spans have certainly shrank uh, with newer platforms and kind of things like that. And you have to grab their attention. It's got to be quick hitting all that kind of stuff. But people still watch 30 minute shows. They still watch 20 minute interviews. They still watch, you know, a game that Zion's playing in, whatever it is. To me, it was always more about that just connection to culture and people their age that that look like them, that are like them, et cetera. Uh, and you can see it, as you mentioned, you go on ESPN, you go on SportsCenter, they're posting trick shots, right? They're posting yeah. very, very, very similar things when you would think yes. that they're paying Somebody sent the them highest. the memo which said, I don't know why overtime's so big, but whatever they're doing, just copy it. And someone got the memo. So, yeah. and I would say, yes, they, they absolutely, look, they watch squid games. Like there's a million things that people watch. Like they don't only watch one minute of it, but traditional live televised sports with a lot of commercial breaks, some of which is only available on paid cable TV. It, it's hard to get somebody who is used to binge watching, who is used to action happening at a different pace to engage in all three hours of that. And so people will jump in and out if they live in the home with their parents, maybe who might be watching it or otherwise. But sometimes they're just like, I just watched a recap on YouTube or whatever. So their level of interest for the most part is fairly strong, but that interest is not a one-to-one -one correlation with sitting on the couch for three hours and consuming 50 commercials and watching a full sports game from end to end. Yeah, and I think, uh, I don't have the numbers on me exactly, but one of the things I always thought was interesting was if you broke down a pro sports game, 90% of it in, in football and baseball, are, you're not watching live action, right? You're watching commercials, yeah. in-between plays, pitches, that kind of stuff. So uh, the highlight aspect of it was always, was always huge to me. But so this leads me to another point, right, which is uh, – Short form content is historically not easy to make money on, right? It's just not great for advertising. It's not great for a, a variety of reasons, but we'll, we'll just say short form content in general uh, is, is more challenging than longer form content to make money on. So how does overtime make money today? And, and we'll get to overtime right. elite. So let's just stick right. to the, the, the legacy business for now. So first of all, I agree with you. I never went out there and said, you're going to make money from short form content. What I did say is that Platforms that support short form content, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, like that's your CMS. That's how you build your brand and you build your community and you get on people's radar. And if you know how to use them, you make them love you. Um, most of our revenues come from long form content. We have 25 episodic series that are available on YouTube. They're available on Snap. I think in the... Uh, aforementioned Quibi back in the day, you know, when they shut down, we actually had more series than, than they did despite raising a billion dollars. So we've really perfected the ability to do kind of digital first, long-term, long-form narrative storytelling. They're all shot in 4K. Um, and brands love that because 20 years ago, you could advertise on a pro sports game and you could reach our audience today, you're not going to reach them. So if you want to be able to essentially reach them, then you got to do business with us. And so whether that's being integrated into a show, sponsoring a show or anything else like that, we have a very strong business working with over 75 uh, different brands. And okay. So, so the, the, the second part is we have an e-commerce business okay. too, and we sell a tremendous number of things that have overtime on them, apparel, lifestyle apparel, and and things like that. And those two, not including overtime elite, are the, are the balances. And now actually, um, 
creating digital content, participating in the NFT economy and other things like that is is about to be a fast growing revenue stream for us too. And I, I would almost put that in the e-commerce zone because to me, the e-commerce says that's direct revenue, right? You sell digital goods or you sell physical goods to your fans. And the other is indirect, meaning people pay because they want to reach your audience. Okay. So that's helpful. Uh, revenue doubled in 2020? Yes. In 2019? It'll double again. Double again. All right. Uh, no chance we can get you to give a number, right? Uh, if I want to keep my job, no chance. <laughs> okay. I figured I'd try. But, but when there's an epic exit, you can write one of those things you could put each year and what the revenue went. It can go up like that. I'm excited to do that. Uh, <laughs> so let's go to Overtime Elite. You guys raised uh, money last year. You raised, I believe, $80 million Series C, bunch of people, 25 NBA players, pro athletes, but also Jeff Bezos and Drake. Uh, first, before we get into Overtime Elite, how do you raise money from so Drake has invested in 100 Thieves. He's invested in a few other things that are, I think, similar, at least in nature, to the entertainment content business. So that makes sense in my mind. How do you how, how do you get Jeff Bezos to invest in this? Did you call him up and you say, Jeff, I need a check? Um, I wish I could say we were boys like that, <laughs> um, but, but we were not. It's like all fundraising, right? Like, you know, we, we know a guy who introduced us to Rich Kleiman and Kevin Durant. You know, we, we know someone who introduced us to Drake in, in a lot of those cases, they already knew who we were. They had followed us or they had heard about us. And so it's great if it's a warm introduction. I mean, I, I didn't sit at home and say, you know, dear Mr. Drake, my name is Sam Porter and this is the company and I'd like you to invest. But it happens through any number of series of relationships. And and even the Jeff Bezos investment, you know, oddly came because he went to Princeton and I went to Princeton and I knew somebody who knew somebody. Um, and we talked to an investment professional who he works with. And that person was like, yeah, my kids watch overtime and they love their overtime sweatshirts. So it's, you know, that's not a reason to invest, but it, it helps you get in the door to be able to tell the story. And if you have a compelling story, the rest of it makes sense. And I think that, you know, the harder part was probably in the first two years, you're still trying to get on the radar and you're still trying to make culture and you're still trying to do other things. And, and now, like you said, 6% of active NBA players are investors in overtime. And I would say a huge number of those are actually athletes that we covered when they were on their journey to the NBA. That's wild. I didn't know. I knew it was a large number, but 6% uh, really puts it into perspective, obviously. How, so you mentioned uh, Kevin and Rich earlier, Kevin Durant, Rich Kleiman. How instrumental was, because one of the first times I also remember seeing it was Kevin was wearing an overtime hat into, into games and stuff or sweatshirts. Yeah. Or whatever. He was wearing merch, basically. And I remember yeah. thinking like, Oh shit, like this is real, right? Like he's yeah. he's sure he invested in all this stuff, but this is gonna help. How helpful was that with with the younger generation? Uh it was huge. I mean, you know, the credibility that somebody like him or Carmelo Anthony, who was our kind of sec second investor like that, the fact that they either chose to invest or wore a hat, like Dan Porter's not putting you in the culture, KD or even Carmelo is putting you in the culture. And so there's a business ramification. You can go to try to pitch a brand and they're like, I haven't really heard of overtime. And you can say, well, these 
these guys, KD is an investor and they're like, oh, that must be real. And there's the validation that these are gigantic athletes with massive followings who, you know, are all Hall of Fame athletes. And they're and, and they also have massive social platforms. And so their validation um, is huge. At the end of the day, you know, if the greatest athlete in the world endorses you and you don't have a dope product with a big audience, it doesn't matter. But when you can put those two things together, um, that's huge. And, and Kevin and Rich, I mean, a strong team, like in New York, obviously, um, tons of advice and, and tons of validation and, and also even more door opening, right? Those doors start to open. And if you can get to that, like if you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to get there and, you know, you can get to Joe Pompliano and you can have one more door open and door open like that. That's what you're trying to do, uh, what you're trying to do ultimately. And I think the other thing was that I think people were like, oh, overtime's great, but it's like some social media thing. Like it might as well be dogs jumping through a basketball hoop. And so having the credibility of people who are obviously professionals in this space, um, really, really, really big for us. Um, and then adding, you know, you know, Trey Young and Devin Booker and like Zach Levine and all these other people like that, just just huge for us. Yeah. So you go out and you raise this $80 million uh, from the last round. And the idea behind that was you launched Overtime Elite. So uh, again, I think given the the environment that we're in now with college basketball and everything changing, I, it, it was major news. The tweet, I, when I sent it out, I think it got over 10,000 likes. Like people loved it, right? Yeah, exactly. See, I got your back. <laughs> they, they, uh, they loved it just because, and I think it wasn't because uh, part of it certainly was the payment behind it, right? So uh, for people who aren't familiar, you guys, and correct me where I'm wrong, but are paying players anywhere from $100,000 to I believe you're paying uh, one kid a million dollars. Jalen, I think is getting, or somewhere close to it. Is that correct? I mean, people say a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> we definitely pay them 100,000. Some of them you have to remember on two or three year deals. So, okay. but yeah, some people make more than that for sure. Okay, so we'll say over a hundred, some people are making bases 100. Uh, you're also giving them the ability to, uh, they get health benefits, they get world-class training. You guys hired Kevin Ollie, which who, who won a national championship at UConn. Um, they have the ability to do shoe deals. They get equity in overtime. They have health benefits uh, and they have what? You know what I call it? What? Web three basketball. <laughs> that that's uh that's too big of a buzzword uh to, to include here. Uh but but I like it. But but my point really, right, is like what was the idea behind this? Because the rules with college basketball, uh, I don't know timing wise if they had changed or if they hadn't changed. They hadn't yet. changed. Their NIL had not yet passed. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think the idea was that um it was it was really it was kind of three things at the same time. One thing was just having a relationship with a lot of young athletes and their families. It became clear that there were a segment of athletes who just were not happy with the options available to them. Either they didn't want to go to college or, you know, their parents thought the one and done was silly or, you know, they were going and playing 150 AU and high school games and their bodies were breaking down. There are any number of reasons why, you know, there weren't enough options for them. And I, and to backtrack, I will always say like, I love Overtime Elite and it's our product, but 
Our goal really is to introduce choice into the system. So if you don't want to come to us and you want to go play at Duke or in Australia or train on your own, those are all great. Like everybody wins when there's more options in the market. There's nothing more American than choice. And so I think we, 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 from a, from like a customer development standpoint to get into the startup speak, like we went out and talked to 30 families for hundreds of hours and, and learned what they didn't like and what was missing from the system. I think from a, a business standpoint for us, we got to the point where we wanted our own IP. We didn't want to just be covering other people's IP. I think media is a cool business, but I think it's better to be an IP owner. Um, and so those two things came together. And I think the third thing was that it was so clear that there were, to use a buzzword, disruptive opportunities in sports. And so the idea that you could make the players owners, right? You know, we have three teams in the league and shortly we're going to announce the name of the teams right now. They kind of call them who the names of coaches aren't, you know why? Because actually the players are going to name the teams themselves and collaborate with a local Atlanta artist to create the logo. Like everything I I'm joking about web three basketball, but if you actually don't centralize power and you distribute it and you build from the ground up, you can do things that are really different. You know, all of our games are called by really popular YouTubers who also share content and they distribute it outwards. It's a very much of a very kind of different model about how to think about sports and sports IP. And I think that's why it resonated with us essentially a digital startup to do this because we're taking a lot of the things that we understood from building our business and applying it here versus I think in traditional sports startup environments, you have a bunch of people who have spent their whole lives in traditional media and traditional sports, and they just create another version of the same thing. It just happens. The seasonality is different or anything else like that. So there's a long, long list of things that we're doing differently. The way that we educate the athletes completely different um, the financial literacy side. I mean, we do so much work on the education and even the physical health of the athletes that we find that we get some, a small number of athletes who have had, you know, report cards and health cards and everything else like that, that are not completely filled with accurate information and they've just been passed along in a system. And I think if you start and you say, I want to do something disruptive in sports, but you have a management team that says every athlete who's in our program will be treated the same way that I, Dan Porter, would treat my own children, you know, health-wise, food-wise, nutrition-wise. I think you can build something that adds a lot of value to the world, adds a lot of value to them and their families and their lives and empowers them and also makes a dope product that hopefully fans want to watch. Yeah. So there, there's a few things to unpack here. I want to eventually get to uh, the revenue side of it and, you know, talk through how you guys are making money on it and stuff. But to me, the way I originally think about this is uh, if you go international, this is common, right? It's very common, whether it's very soccer common. or soccer academy, soccer academies are very common. Um, but then even if you look at the NBA, some of the best players in the world are international players, right? Luca is obviously not from uh, here. Giannis Three is of the from, MVPs are yeah. right. Giannis, Luca and Jokic and Jokic. Yeah. So, so they, they have some experience kind of, uh, playing in a professional setting at a younger age, which, uh, you can debate all day long, but at some point, I think everyone agrees that it's helpful to a certain extent from a, uh, you know, a player development standpoint. But the other thing is anyone who has ever played high school sports knows to some degree that it is 
uh, it's not the right situation for the top players in the country, right? You're going, uh, you're, you're waking up at 6 37 in the morning. You're taking a bus to school. In some cases you are in class all day long. You're in a 30 person class. They're not teaching you a lot of things they're not teaching you may not be relevant to what you're going to be doing long term. Um, you go to practice, the coaching isn't always the best, the facilities are not the best, your recovery, your treatment, all the of level that. Level of competition. Level of competition, exactly. So uh, in some cases, this may sound absurd and uh, whatever, but I think some people would, uh, there's a certain set of people that would pay a lot of money to attend overtime elite right? Because of that aspect of getting the top tier everything. Uh, so what have these conversations been like with families that you go to? I'm assuming you've pitched this to a bunch of people, right? And some of them had said, you know, I'm going to Duke, I'm going to Kentucky, uh, I'm going to go international. Like you said, there's a bunch of options. But what has been the feedback from families that said yes, and some that said no? Yeah, so I would say, you know, growing up, I had an across the street neighbor who was a violin prodigy, like literally one of the top five violinists in the world at his age. Um, and he essentially, before we had a thing called homeschool, he was essentially homeschooled because to, to operate at that level, he can't be sitting in a 35 person class at seven in the morning with his backpack. He's practicing, he's working with the orchestra, he's studying music theory, he has a gift. Um, and, and his parents understood how to make that gift flourish. And I, I think this is the same case. So I think the funny thing is that of all the people who signed up for us, they, they had never played in our venue. We couldn't offer a campus tour that, you know, a college could offer. It, they, they understood the promise and they knew who Kevin Ollie was, Brandon Williams, Ryan Gomes, and a lot of the people we worked with. And they, they took a little bit of a risk and, you know, we, we just played our first two games and the facility is beautiful, by the way, yes. people, people Thank listening you. need to go look at it because I believe it's over a hundred thousand square feet, uh, which people don't realize is massive. Obviously it's really, really, really nice. It's, it's very top tier. So, uh, you certainly followed through on your promise there. I appreciate you. And all those are true. And so now that they see that it's real and I was talking to one of the players and he said, he's like, yeah, after that game, like all the other players are hitting me up and they're like, I I'm interested in this. And I said, what? cause they saw it. And I said, what'd you tell him? And he said, I told them that there are good people here. And I was like, that made me feel good. Like it made me feel that we were doing the right things and he's a teenager. So he's not going to get granular on academics yeah. or this and training is that, but he's like, they're good people here. And so I would say the no's were people who said this is untested. I, it's like too much of a risk for me. And I'd say the yeses were, I think people who understood that they and their families wanted a different path that our message resonated with them. Um, and, you know, the, the irony is that every press article says the same thing. And they say, well, these, you know, these, these young athletes have given up the opportunity to go to college to play for overtime elite. And that's completely false. They've given up the opportunity to play basketball in college, but they can go to college whenever they want. And in fact, we'll, we'll give them a scholarship to go to college. So they could play, they could make money, they could go to the NBA. What's the average lifespan in the NBA? Two years. They could make a million dollars and then they could go to college if they want. And by the way, their academic preparation will be so strong. They'll get in on their own merits. And I think in this country, we propagate this myth that for a certain, you know, social class of people, the only way to get into college 
is to play sports. And the only way to afford college is to play sports. When in fact, it's 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 much broader than that. And, and furthermore, the average age of a college student in the United States is 26 years old. And so we, we extrapolate from a small number, a minority of the population who go to college when they're 18, who go to a four-year residential academic college. And we assume the whole country is like that. And that's not true either. And I think that there were people who understood that. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, I was talking to the grandfather of, of one of the players came and he said, I love this program and my son loves it. But, you know, I kind of always wanted him to be an investment banker. And I said, great. He can go be an investment banker when he's 25 or when he's 30. He can go to college. He can take courses while he's doing whatever. We we offer academic credit, college credit for anybody who's over 18. Um, and so this idea that we live in the world where, like, your choices lead you down a very narrow tunnel, it's just false. It's, it's a myth that we propagate because people want the system to stay the same way it is. And so I think we were lucky to connect with you know, a number of players who saw things differently. And then we have kind of six international superstars and they're like, Oh, we understand this model. You know, yeah, it makes um, a lot more sense. We're already part of this model. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So on the revenue side, uh, or just more broadly, how you guys make money. Right. So I think the reason why I want to ask this is because when people think of traditional sports leagues, right, we'll just use the NFL, the NBA, et cetera, as an example, they make most of their money on media rights. Right. And the NFL just signed a hundred billion dollar deal or whatever it is. The NBA is going to see theirs expand. But my point is that they make a large percentage wise on uh, on media rights. There is, in my opinion, uh, I, I don't believe there's probably this gigantic market for media rights for high school basketball. Right. Uh, you're not going to be able to sell it. Me neither. But I'm not selling high school basketball. I'm selling pro basketball. True. True. And Yeah. In between, I would say, I guess, but they're pros. This isn't high school basketball. This it, isn't like a gym with St. Mary's playing St. Raymond's. Of course. This yeah, is it's, like people two years away from being an NBA all-star who are playing in an eight camera shoot environment at a high professional level. 100%. Many of these people are elite athletes who have hundreds of thousands of followers too. So yes, I don't think there's a big mo 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 you know, market for media rights for high school basketball, but that's not the business I'm in. Fair point. I think uh, so that my, my Don't question. Don't put me in a box, Tom. Well, my question was really, I was stating that because uh, I was going to ask if the revenue model is very similar to, to the to the regular overtime business. So, right? so I would say um, I would say yes and no. So I believe you is sponsorships category wrong. one. Well, well so I, I would believe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe for the Premier League that sponsorship revenues are bigger than media rights revenues. Yes, they make a lot and, of money on their sponsorships. And so that's a big opportunity for us. We have announced sponsors. Gatorade is one. State Farm is another. And we have a number of those coming up. And they want to be part of something new, part of something disruptive, part of something that's about empowering young people. You know, we had over 4 million people watched, you know, an overtime victory that we had in our first ever game. Um, and so there's a ton of distribution. So, so that's a big opportunity for us. Number two, um, you know, we have a deal with tops. It's gone incredibly well. I mean, we've sold hundreds of thousands of trading cards. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's all of that group licensing and for number three, yeah, we're going to do a big media rights deal. And we've already had inquiries and we've already said no. Um, I, I think that in a traditional sports startup league, 
if you study kind of sports business, what happens is you go to Fox or someone like that and you say, I don't have any audience. So you guys can have this for free on TV and it fills out their calendar. And they're like, this is how people are going to discover us. I don't need to do that. Right. I can hold that back for three years because millions of people will see it because I already own my own platform. But I absolutely think in in along with the other you know, revenue drivers, sports sponsorship and essentially group licensing and so forth, that we will have a massive media rights deal uh, at some point in the next several years because we will have proven out by everything, by how many people watch, how many people follow, by how many people buy trading cards, by how many people buy jerseys, that there's a massive market for this. And sure, I'm sure you'll be able to find some high school basketball game in a local affiliate, but we're, we're building a pro league. Like we're building something that we want to be in the same realm as the NCAA tournament and as the NBA. And I think if you look at rights deal in this country, what, what was paid for the Bundesliga, right? How many German soccer fans are there in the United States? I would argue we probably have more fans and that, that's not a rub against them. It's just, there's just not as a developed market where you look at the rights people give for college sports and very few people outside of alumni of a college with the exception of a Duke or a Notre Dame care. So I don't know, did you go to Creighton? Will you watch a Creighton basketball game every single time? That's nothing to do with Creighton. It's just that their audience is probably not that much bigger than their alumni base, which is not very big. We have 55 million followers across all of our platforms. Our audience is really big and there's no ceiling on it. There's nothing that says you had to have gone to this school or live in this city to be a fan. How fast is that audience growing? That audience, even on a month over month basis, uh, grows very fast. And we have also, I think a lot of people don't know, we've done a number of talent deals. Uh, originally, we, we developed all of our own talent. Our biggest talent all grew from nothing to where they are. And now we've brought on additional talent. Um, and so not only are we growing and now they're growing as a distributor uh, of our content and personalities as well. So, you know, that number will hit 100 million at, at some point. And I'll, I'll still be alive at that point. So it'll be fairly soon. Oh, I bet it happens uh, much sooner than people would expect, I'll yes. say. Yes, uh, I, I think so. Uh, okay, we'll end it here in a second. I'm going to go through, I'm going to name, uh, we'll call this, I've never done this, but a speed round. And we will do, uh, I'll, I'll name a few things, just buzzwords today. And you tell me if they are relevant to Overtime Elite, if they're not relevant, and if they are what you plan to do with them. Okay. Got it? Got the rules? You're good? Yeah. All right. Sports betting. Very relevant, not to overtime elite, but to overtime. I think the future of sports betting has to do with community and it has to do with digital first influencers, not athletes and not kind of diehard degenerate gamblers. And so we have a big focus on kind of the mainstreaming of sports betting. Okay. You touched on this second one briefly, uh, but NFTs. NFTs, absolutely. I, I think you have to think broader than NFTs. You have to think about what is the digital first experience for fans, and that's going to evolve. And, and I mean, that's huge. That That's our audience. I mean, I go to some of our games and there are 18 year old kids telling me, oh, yeah, I bought Shiba Inu in June and, you know, I have it in my wallet and whatever else like that. So that's their wallet. We're, we're already in business. OK. And you touched on this a little bit in that last question also. But how do you define the metaverse? So I define the metaverse as something that is interoperational. And so if you think about way back when I started, 
if you had an AOL email account, you could not email somebody on Prodigy or CompuServe, right? Those were closed networks. You could only email people on the different networks. And eventually it opened up and an email address meant that you could sign in, you could email anyone anywhere. And so for me, the metaverse is creating a high level of interoperational thing. And so when I look at Facebook and Meta, what like their description to me sounds like a virtual world. Like I go into this place and I interact, but the whole point of the metaverse is I should be able to leave that place and go to a competitor's place. And I should take my stuff with me and everything else like that. And I think that's going to be challenging unless some of these companies realize it's in their interest to break down those walls to some extent. Does overtime have interest in the metaverse? I mean, if I want to double my valuation, I'll tell you we have interest in the metaverse. Just say it, Dan. Just say it. I, I, I think that, you know what I think about more? I think about how does sports fandom evolve to allow you to be a fan in a way that's not just about buying a jersey and watching something at home? How are you allowed to participate, show your fandom, connect with other fans in physical and in virtual spaces? Um, so yeah, as that impact, I don't think metaverse over time, I think fan experience. And if that means that, you know, participating in a larger web three digital ecosystem is what drives that, then absolutely. Yeah. I think, uh, I, I think we agree on that approach. Um, okay. Where can we find, where can we send people to uh, find more out about overtime, overtime elite? I'm assuming they follow them on social media already, but let's talk overtime elite. Where can people learn more about that program? So you can come to our website for overtime elite you guys have a website shockingly we do have a website (laughs) we have to report scores and and i I thought you were only on social media i know but like you can't buy tickets really on social media so so we have to we have to take a step back have a website but that's overtime elite.com plugins overtime elite.com you should check out ote on tiktok you should check out overtime elite on uh twitter you should we're just overtime O-V-E-R-T-I-M-E on Instagram and on all those platforms. And as soon as you check out even one of those platforms, you'll kind of get drawn into the whole universe. Amazing. We even have an app in the app store if you want to play all kinds of free to play uh, prediction games and stuff like that just under overtime. You guys are everywhere, man. You're everywhere. We're that's we're great. We're like, uh, we're like, we're like seven Pomplianos. <laughs> well, you, you, uh, you know, me, you probably know my older brother. There's a younger one who, uh, I don't know if you've seen him on Twitter yet, but most people don't know this. We still got two more ready to go, uh, th- that aren't on Twitter yet, aren't anywhere on, on the internet. So, uh, once send people, them to OTE. That's our specialty. Once people get, uh, tired of us, we'll, we'll bring them out and, and give them some new faces. Uh, but Dan, thank you. So- yeah, Dan, thank you so much for decentralized Pomplianos. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll have to see about that uh, strategy. But uh, thanks for doing this, Dan. I really appreciate it. Uh, taking some time out of your day. I think people are going to really enjoy this uh, and good luck on everything you guys are doing and building. I appreciate you uh, for having me, Joe. And always a big fan and subscribe to Joe's newsletter if you don't. Thanks for the plug. All right. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks.